You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. And we are back. Um, what a hell of a time it's been. <laughs> I don't think anyone quite understands the hellish two weeks you've been through. No. And I apologize. That's why we don't have, haven't had a new episode. But um, just to give a little backstory, we had a massive two alarm fire in White Center, Washington, which is where my business is. And it ended up becoming, once we were able to review some video, we were able to see that it was a arsonist who jumped over the back patio and set fire to a local gay bar. Um, So this is considered a hate crime. And it ended up burning to the ground. And it burnt not just that business, but six others in the process. So, So, so sad. It's been awful. And I was uh, trying to get fundraising going for the local businesses and working on, I put together a event at our space to raise money. So I've been preoccupied with that. And then a few days ago, I, uh, my father who has dementia, um, I don't know if I've mentioned that before, but my dad has dementia and Unfortunately, he ended up in the ER with a bad infection. So I then was in the hospital with him for a couple of days. And then there was a gas leak on our street and our business was evacuated. I mean, it's been like unreal. It's like one thing after another for you guys. It's just been a lot. Yes. And the gas leak is repaired and everything's fine, but And the fire department was very fast in getting that remedied, but oh my God, it's just been hellish. I can't even describe it any other way. It's been terrible. Right. Um, But we are now, uh, things are looking up. (laughs) Yes. Crossed. Yes. Fingers crossed. crossed. Everything crossed. So I apologize that we haven't had an episode, but I have been living in an episode. Yes. 100%. Everyone is so understanding. I'm sure now that they know what's going on completely that they knew why we had to take a little bit of a break. Yeah. I mean, I would absolutely rather be recording podcast episodes than dealing with all yes. the I've been doing. So <laughs> anyway, we are back. Yes. I am super excited about mine um, because I did it's just, it's a real crazy story and I haven't found any other podcasts that have covered it. So I'm excited to share it with you guys and autumn. And then I don't know anything about yours. So I'm excited about that. And you go first this week. Yes. And I've tried to keep my mouth closed about it. I know me too. And I almost told you a couple of times, but I'm like, no, 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 no. I need her to react to it. Right. It's just so hard because it's been a while. So, I mean, I've been sitting on this story and I'm like, the last two weeks, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so, I can't wait to tell you mine. And then (laughs) shit happened. And then it's just one thing after another. another. (laughs) 
but we're excited. We're excited to be back. We're excited to to be able to tell each other these stories that we've had for two weeks. (laughs) Yes. We've been ready to be back in ANSI. Yes. So let's get to murder. (laughs) Go ahead. I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) We're rusty. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to be telling you about the McStay family. On February 10th, 2010, Patrick McStay of Houston, Texas, was going on day five of trying to reach his 40-year-old son, Joseph McStay, who lived in Fallbrook, California. He kept receiving his voicemail, but he was unable to leave a message as his voicemail was full. This was very unusual for his son as he owned and operated a completely online high-end water feature business named Earth Inspired Products. Hmm. And even if he was not able to be reached, he would never have his voicemail so full that his clients were unable to leave a message for him. That's how he made his living via the phone orders and email. He was a very successful businessman And these fountains were $10,000 and over. He was very proud of his business and cared about his clients. This just didn't sit well with his dad. Patrick reaches out to his younger son, Michael, who isn't as concerned as his father at first. Joseph was known to take a few days off from time to time to recharge or have a little family mini vacation. Michael reaches out to Joseph's coworkers to see if they may know where he might be. And no one seems to know. That's suspect. Mm-hmm. Patrick and Michael continue to try and reach Joseph for an additional three days. When Michael decides to head over to his brother's house with Joseph's good friend and business partner, Chase Merritt, on February 13th, Chase had not heard from Joseph since February 4th. Oh, my God. He had ignored his phone call because he was watching a movie with his girlfriend and he hasn't been able to get a hold of him since either. So this is just out of character. Out of character and a fair amount of time at this point. Right. Especially your business partner. I mean, sometimes a grown adult isn't going to respond super fast to their parent, but I feel like your business partner, you're going to clue well, yeah. them in. And the fact that he was so dedicated to his business, mm-hmm. it's weird that he wouldn't be answering his calls. And, you know, you'd want to be able to get a hold of, you know, the person that you're running a business with because they're a hundred percent, you know, totally. Yeah. Right. It, it's, and it's not just this small side business. I mean, these, these are tens of thousands of dollars for these yeah. fountains. This is yeah. expensive and products. Work work and craftsmanship and all of that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Upon arrival, there seems to be no sign of Joseph or his wife, 43-year-old Summer McStay, or their children, five-year-old Gianni and three-year-old Joseph Jr., who everyone called Joey. Joseph's truck is in the driveway, but the family vehicle was gone. Michael was able to find an open window in the back of the house and gain entry inside the home. Everything appeared to be as if they had just left, but had planned to return home shortly. There was a carton of eggs still on the kitchen counter, 
and two small bowls of popcorn on the couch in the TV room. So it seems like they left in a hurry. Right. Like the two small popcorn bowls makes me think that the kids were watching a movie. Sure. Of course. Their two dogs were also still in the backyard. Anyone who knew the family knew how much they loved their dogs and would not have left them unattended for a long period of time. Yeah. And if, and if they had gone on a mini family vacation, all of their friends and family said they most definitely would have brought their dogs along with them. Well, I hear that. Yes. (laughs) Red flags were everywhere for Michael and Patrick. They gave it three more days of attempting to make contact with Joseph before Michael called the police on February 15th, 2010, and reported that his brother and his family were missing. Yeah. At that point, they're like, we just need to know. Sure. It's been a long time at that. I mean, time yeah. days and days and days. Are going and the on. whole family with no word at all. That's so weird. It's really weird. Joseph and Summer had met, fell in love, and got married. When they got together, Summer had recently broken up with an abusive ex-boyfriend, and all their family and friends have said it was like Joseph rescued her from her life of abuse and loneliness, that they were really good for each other and were the best of friends. Joseph was described as very personable and down-to-earth with a surfer personality. He was a hard worker and took pride in his business. He had started it from the ground up. He owned and operated the business for over 10 years, and it was a very successful million-dollar company. Summer was described as very free-spirited, kind, and loved to have a good time. She was a real estate agent at the time of her disappearance. In November 2009, Joseph and Summer bought a fixer-upper in Fallbrook, California, where they wanted to raise their two boys. They were in the throes of renovating their home for a few months at this point. Everything seemed to be looking up for their young family. On February 19th, armed with a search warrant, police searched the McStay family home. They found no evidence of foul play but did agree with Michael and Chase that the family had left in a hurry. They had leaving the carton of eggs on the kitchen counter and the popcorn bowls on the couch, Summer's prescription glasses, and there were also paint cans left out with the brushes uncleaned, and not to mention their dogs. Most importantly, the dogs. Most importantly, the dogs. Then... The police catch a mini break. They were able to obtain footage from the next door neighbor's surveillance camera that showed around all those cameras come in handy that showed around 747 PM the night of February 4th, 2010, the wheels of the family's 1996 Azuzu trooper backing out of the driveway, but only the wheels. The camera did not capture the occupants or the upper half of the vehicle. This means that the family truly has been missing for more than a week. Yeah. Going off the only clue they had, police put out a bolo, be on the lookout, for the family vehicle. 
they immediately receive information that the vehicle was found in a strip mall parking lot near the Mexican border on February 8th, and it had been towed. Mm -hmm. That is so weird. So weird. The police searched the vehicle for any evidence of foul play, and it turns up clean. No broken glass, no blood, no signs of a struggle of any kind. Investigators start to theorize that the family might have parked their car and crossed over to Mexico by foot. They comb through surveillance videos around the time they went missing and come across a video that shows a family of four crossing into Mexico around 7.30 p.m. on February 8th, which is the same night the car was towed from the parking lot. Yeah. I actually remember seeing clips of this video played on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries where where I first heard this story and it for sure looks like the four of them, like Joseph, Summer, and their two little boys. Everybody's like the right height and it looks Mm -hmm. like it. It looks just like them. The police asked the family to watch the video footage and they also believe that this might be them. The two little boys often wore beanies And the children in the video were also wearing beanies. Summer, who loved to wear Uggs, also appeared to be wearing Ugg boots in the video. Mm. However, since this video was shot at night, it looks like shadows. There's no clear footage and no footage of their faces to positively identify that this is, in fact, the McStay family. Sure. Investigators are going back to the last known day that the McStay family had been known to be in town. Joseph had talked to his dad on the phone that day and let him know he had a business meeting and met his business partner, Chase, for lunch in Rancho Cucamonga. Summer spoke to her sister on the phone. No mention of a family trip or any issues. The last activity on Joseph's phone was the 8 p.m. phone call to Chase. That went to his voicemail. So at this point, they're just like, they're probably in Mexico. Right. I mean, even if they were, though, they would have communicated it. So something one would think something's going on. Right. One would think that they would tell people they were going on a family vacation. Well, yeah, especially their business partner and, you know, their family, (laughs) their family. Like she had just talked to her sister on the phone. Why wouldn't she have mentioned that? Well, and if they were devoted to their dogs, then they would have set up a pet sitter. I mean, there would be a whole thing. Yes, they would have definitely had a sitter or brought them. I mean, I don't know if you can bring dogs over the border. Yeah, you can. You just have to, um, you have to have them do um, some vaccinations and and things like that. It takes a while, but you can get the paperwork done. So, I mean, they're, they're successful family with success, a business, you, they would probably have that handled if they wanted to take them. Of course. Police are convinced that the family crossed over the border to Mexico, but why, why would a successful businessman leave behind his new home, friends and family without any communication with anyone and in a rush? Yes. He didn't tell his employees or anybody. Yeah. Among the items that the search warrant allowed to be removed from the home and searched was Summer's computer. In her history, it showed that a few days prior to the disappearance, she had been Googling children's passports 
and what was needed to take children across the border. She also had gotten a language software to teach herself how to speak Spanish. Hmm. This, this seems just, this seems a little suspect to me. Yes, it doesn't does. seem like just a vacation. No, it seems like it seems suspect to me as well. This discovery leads the San Diego County Police Department issuing a statement on what they believe happened to the McStay family. They believe that the video footage of the family of four crossing the border is the McStay family. Joseph and Summer's family does not agree with the police's theory. At this point, Joseph's brother, Michael, makes a Find the McStay family website where he lists all the information they have so far on the disappearance, as well as pictures and resources for people to reach out if they know anything relating to his brother and his family's whereabouts. The website gains national attention. Unsolved Mysteries picks up their story, as well as the national news outlets and talk show circuits. Tips are flooding in, but the leads are going nowhere. A popular theory that had been looked into was Joseph's business did a lot of international shipping. Perhaps he got mixed up with the drug cartel and the cartel had been wanting to put drugs in these fountains to go undetected and smuggle drugs in and out of the country and that Joseph didn't play along. They were, if that were the case, then why would he go to Mexico? Right. If the, if the drug cartel is after him. That's an excellent point because normally the drug cartel is stationed in Mexico. You know, at least. if they're doing international where they're, where they're, would be doing yes. drugs into the United States. I mm-hmm. would assume so, unless unless it's over overseas too. What could it be? Seems, it just seems weird that he would then go to Mexico or go yes. to <laughs> another country if people were after him. Yes, I agree 100%. <laughs> if they were indeed on the run, they would need somewhere to go to hide out per se. Patrick knows that, that Joseph and Summer own a piece of property off the grid in Belize. They that's had been. Kind of, that's kind of weird, though. I know it kind, kind of is, but he's kind of an eccentric guy. Okay. He, he just is. And so is Summer. They're just like free spirited. Like he had that sure. super, surfer mentality. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Very that creative. Makes, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. They, they had planned on retiring there. Patrick calls the authorities in Belize and asks them to do a wellness check on the property that his son owns. That makes Hope, sense. Mm-hmm, it's pretty smart. Hoping yep. to find the family there. The authorities report back and it's another dead end. There's, also, it, it does seem weird that they would go to Mexico to get to Belize. Yes, I agree. I think that that would have been a weird roundabout way to get there as well. Sure. <laughs> There is no evidence that the family has been at the property in Belize. Mm -hmm. Joseph's father, Patrick, has the IDs and password to all their accounts. He logged in to the McStay's joint checking account and discovers they had $100,000 in their bank account when they disappeared. And no major withdrawals before they went missing and no activity at all after. If you're looking to go off the grid, 
wouldn't you think you would want to bring cold, cash. hard cash with you? Mm-hmm. That's exactly where my mind went. I was like, mm, I don't it's know about really this. Strange. It's mm-hmm. real, and you think that even if they were, you know, on a vacation or something, you would see purchases made. Yes. You would definitely see some It'd sort of activity. activity. Yeah. Yes. During this time, they also discovered that Summer had an email from her ex-boyfriend from December 2009. The abusive guy, right? Mm-hmm. Six weeks before they disappeared, saying, happy birthday, love forever and ever, Vic Johansson. Fuck off, Vic. Right? <laughs> she hadn't spoken to Vic for over five years. Yeah. So, and he's like, oh, happy birthday. Love forever and ever. So yeah, Joseph's dad is like, what the fuck? <laughs> he's not, he's not cool with that email at all. No, of course not. Vic was the super toxic relationship Summer had gotten out of right after she met Joseph. Yeah. He was a former Marine with a history of violence and he had been obsessed with her. Gross. Mm-hmm. The family began to look into where Vic was during the time the McStay family went missing. It turns out that Vic was actually living not too far from their family home. I don't like that. Mm-mm. Could he have killed Summer and her family out of a jealous rage? When the family gives this information to the police department, the police shock them with what they tell them in response. They tell them that Vic had actually called them before they could contact him because he knew he would be a suspect. Okay. That's extremely suspicious to me. I mean, it's pretty preemptive. Yes, extremely preemptive. And and, and like, what is he calling and being like, hi, I'm Vic. I'm probably a suspect. Here's my alibi. Right. I mean, it's just so <laughs> weird. The thing that gets me is like, why did he think he'd be a suspect? At this point, the police have publicly said that they believe the McStay family went to Mexico. Yeah. So why would he think that he was going to be a suspect? Right. He like inserted himself in there, mister. Uh (laughs) Let's see what, let's see. So what, so what happened? (laughs) But Vic provides an alibi Mm -hmm. and he is cleared. Really? Mm -hmm. I still don't like it. Yeah. (laughs) Still don't like it. Yeah. One of Joseph's employees, webmaster Dan Kavanaugh, puts Joseph's company domain up for sale for $1 million and changes his title on the website to CEO. What the fuck? So he's trying to sell this business that he does not own for his missing boss. Yeah, not fucking cool. <laughs> Hello? Like, you don't own that company. No. This is not your company. No. Police are alerted to this development and yeah. go to question Dan. It turns out that he was on a surfing trip in Hawaii and his alibi checks out and he is also cleared. So did somebody maybe like break in? He, no, he definitely put the website up for sale, Mm -hmm. but during the time that the family went missing, he was on a surfing trip. Oh, so that's his alibi. So that's his alibi, but he definitely put the website up for sale saying, Hey, and the the crappy part is, is that Joseph 
actually was super good to him. He had bought him a BMW, just was super really generous with this webmaster because in 2010, websites needed search engines and people to build them for you. It wasn't, people weren't making them like we do at run of the mill now with all these templates and everything. So he, he had a webmaster and he was really appreciative because Dan got him on all of the top search engines. Like you Google the water fountains and his business would come up. So he was really yeah. appreciative. And angel here he fire is. Websites. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, angel, the blogspot.coms and yes, everything yes, and the yes. angel fire. Oh gosh, that brings back oh, memories. I forgot yeah. about angel fire. That was like back when we were IMing each other. <laughs> oh yeah, AOL instant messenger mm-hmm. <laughs> with all the way messages and whatnot. Those were the were best. Very cool. <laughs> We were very, I mean, we still are cool. We've never lost our cool. Yeah. We're, 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 we're always going to be cool. Uh, that's not what cool people say. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Get back to the story. Yeah. 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 Let's cut that part. Wink, wink. Um, anyway, <laughs> in April of 2013, it has now been three years since the family went missing. And since authorities believe that the family in the video footage is the McStay family, and it seems in the video that the family left willingly and didn't seem to be under any distress, they hand over the case to the FBI, as they believe they are more equipped to handle an international missing persons investigation, which makes sense. Yeah. Hopefully they will. That means that they will get some more uh, information. Right. November 11th, 2013, a motorcyclist off-roading in Victorville, California, in the Mojave Desert, which is in San Bernardino County, about 100 miles from Fallbrook, California, notices something strange in the sand. No. Upon closer examination, he realizes it's a human skull and calls 911. A team of investigators came out and they discovered two graves with four decomposed bodies. I was worried about this. Two children and two adults. It was very clear that they had been victims of a savage homicide. Oh my God. It appeared that they had been bludgeoned to death with a three pound sledgehammer. Oh my God. Which they had found buried nearby. Like, are you kidding me right now? fucking awful. It's heartbreaking. A A whole family. Because the bodies were decomposed, they had to rely on dental records to be able to identify the victims. Mm -hmm. When the results came back, it was what their family and friends had feared. Yeah. They had positively identified the remains of the McStay family. So it was all of them. Unfortunately. Where the fuck is Vic? Where is Vic? Uh, Now we want to talk to you again, Vic. That's right. Investigators now knew they were working with a homicide and no longer a missing persons case. They were trying to figure out where this savage murder had been carried out. Of course, they would love to go back to the home and do a deeper investigation. However, it has been three years since they went missing and the house had been sold and a new family was now living there. Yeah. 
any evidence would be long gone at this point. Mm -hmm. They do, however, still have the family vehicle and evidence and are able to search it and run DNA testing. Well, that's when the, mm-hmm. when the test results come back, the results show something that their family did not see coming. There was DNA belonging to Chase Merritt found in the McStay family vehicle. Wait, that's the business owner, right? Mm-hmm. Charles Chase Merritt was an ex-con with a criminal history. He also had a bad gambling habit. Joseph and Chase were business partners, and from what everyone has stated, they were also good friends. Merritt's gambling habit was getting increasingly worse to the point where he was borrowing money from Joseph. By 2010, Joseph had lent him nearly $30,000. Now DNA evidence had been found in the family vehicle, and he was their prime suspect. On November 5th, 2014, four years after the McStay family went missing and were later found murdered, Charles Chase Merritt is arrested and charged with four counts of murder, and the district attorney seeks the death penalty. That was I right. Just, yeah. I'm just like, you know, do they have, do they have enough evidence based on just the fact that he was in the car? Right. Right. And that's, that's one of his attorney's arguments is that they believe it's trace evidence that could have happened when they had that business meeting, the lunch meeting where Joseph would have shaken his hand or hugged him or something. And then got back in his car and put his hand on the steering wheel because the DNA was only found on the steering wheel. That's not on the seatbelt, which seems that he could have just shaken his hand and then transferred it to the steering wheel and the seatbelt. Sure. But it also could have been cleaned. I mean, there's just so many things there's that could, so have, many things. Yeah. could have happened. In July of 2015, Merritt's lawyer filed a request to dismiss the case on a technicality based on the wording that was used when the charges were filed. His request was denied. <laughs> now this case took a long time. It was a very drawn out process for the case to actually come to trial as Merritt would repeatedly fire his lawyers and attempt to represent himself. Oh, great. Who else does that remind you of? Mm, Let me think. Ted Bundy. Yes. (laughs) He was like, let me show you how it's done. (laughs) I'm a lawyer now. I'm a lawyer now. (laughs) He had gone through five lawyers before the trial finally began on January 7th, 2019. Yes. Was he, at that point, was he representing himself? No, oh. <laughs> he had an attorney at this point. I mean, 2019, Jesus Christ. Yes. 2019, nine years since the murder of the McStay family. My God. And five years after Merritt was arrested. Yeah. That's insane. Mm-hmm. During the trial, the prosecutors stated that they believed that Merritt had severe gambling addiction and killed the McStay family for financial gain. They accused that he wrote checks totaling $21,000 from the business account 
after the McStay family was killed, Hmm. followed by a gambling spree at several local casinos where he lost thousands of dollars. He was a really bad gambler. A really bad one. He just kept borrowing and borrowing and losing and losing. And it's a really sad, it's a really sad cycle. Yes. Like any addiction is a really sad cycle. Of course. And it's an exhausting. Yes. And it leads to some pretty bad decisions, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) On January 10th, 2019, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. And on June 24th, 2019, he was sentenced to death. So the ju- definitely mm-hmm. had enough evidence then. Yes. The judge upheld their sentencing and he was officially sentenced to death on January 21st, 2020. Oh my God. 10 years after he senselessly ended the lives of a thriving, loving family of four. Can you even? No. It's so tragic. It, it It's just this whole time because- Obviously it's taken this long, but for the longest time, I remember checking that website that his brother set up for them mm-hmm. and seeing if they had any updates on their family. Cause it was such a sad story. And it looked th- that image, which we'll post on our Instagram really truly does look like the four of them. So I could see how people would be holding out hope that they were just in Mexico for some unknown reason. Sure. It's just so tragic to know that whatever happened, because he's never admitted guilt. So there's not a confession to know exactly what happened. And I don't even know if I I were the family, I would want to know because that is so tragic that those little boys were taken so senselessly. Yeah. I mean, three, three and five years old. He had the littlest one had just turned three. I I mean, it's unimaginable. I can't, I can't even go there. It just makes me so, so sad. Yes. My sources were People Magazine Investigates, Unsolved Mysteries, Wikipedia, and America's Most Wanted. Now, one quick question. did, Did he actually, was he actually put to death in 2020? He was sentenced to death in 2020. So the trial ended with his yeah. sentencing so that's just recently. Said. Yeah. Yeah. So he's just been sentenced. He's, I mean, so it takes awaiting. so, yes, it takes so sure. long to actually execute anybody. And I, was he'll, just, I was just curious. Yeah. And he'll have obviously a million he'll, trillion appe- appeals and whatnot, but this man was so guilty. He was writing checks for $21,000, a total of it after they were dead. He knew he wasn't coming back. Yeah. There just wasn't, there's no, and I mean, no amount of money. No, Mm-mm. I mean, it's just awful. That's it's awful. so horrific. So horrific. Thanks for that one, Autumn. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, I knew you'd be really tickled with this one. Yeah. Oh man. That, that was a real doozy. I know. Well, We're going to take a quick break and we'll hear from our sponsor and then we will be back and I will tell another sad, awful story. So stay tuned. (laughs) We are back. Can't wait to hear this one. You've been talking about how you can't wait to tell me. I know. I've been just like telling you over and over again. I'm really excited about mine and then shit kept happening. 
<laughs> and now I get to finally hear it. So I'm, I'm ready. Now I hope it lives up to the hype. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it will. Okay. So today I will be telling you the head and hands murder on mm. June 20. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm already here for it. I know. Right. It's, it really is uh, crazy. On June 27th, 1936, also my birthday, not 1936. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, don't lie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I look really young for my age. Yes. Anyway. Very, very youthful. <laughs> So on June 27th, 1936, three boys were taking a dip near Carrollton, Kentucky, when they noticed a large number of fish circling around a cardboard box. It seemed to be filled with concrete and about two feet below the surface. They started to lift the box out of the water, but dropped it and ran to the sheriff when they noticed a human hand sticking out of the concrete. Oh my God. This is no. how it starts. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Inside, investigators found two hands and a man's head, which led to the case being known as the head and hands murder. Wow. Yeah. This is the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> the person who belonged to the head and the hands was a respected and wealthy retired Cincinnati fire captain Harry R. Miller. Interest in the case reached a high peak as the gruesome details of the murder were uncovered one by one. And this is how it went. On the morning of June 12th, at an isolated spot near Carrollton, Kentucky, a farmer discovered a pool of blood, an axe, blood-stained handkerchiefs, and several other objects which led him to believe that a murder had been committed. This incident was recorded with this paragraph in the Cincinnati newspapers. On the morning of June 28th, near Eminence, Kentucky, 20 miles from the point where the pool of blood had been discovered more than two weeks before, the headless torso of a man was found under a culvert. Oh my God. Yeah. Even though this was an uncommon story, at that point, it did not receive much attention in Cincinnati, which is shocking. Yes, I was just about to say what I would run with that if I was a reporter. Right. The murder got its first headline in the Cincinnati Inquirer on June 29th. On the following day, three new Trenton, Indiana neighbors of Miller's identified the head. Ooh. On the following day, Miss Flora Miller, the murdered man's 66-year-old sister and her chauffeur, Heber Hicks, a former convict, drove to Carrollton to view the head. They said they could not identify it. What? However, however, Miller's dentist did positively ID the body as Harry R. Miller through the dental records. And I say the body, but I mean the head. (laughs) Right. The head. (laughs) By itself. By itself with its hands. <laughs> Investigators discovered that Hicks had a frightening criminal history, including robbery and murder of a young woman. He shot her and cut off her fingers to get her rings. For that, yeah, for that, Hicks was sent to jail for life. But for some reason, he was paroled after 11 years. What the 
heck? Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. That's disturbing. On July 2nd, Hicks and Miss Miller were arrested by Indiana State Police at Miller's home. They were held in comunicado, which means they weren't allowed to talk to anyone. Good, but- because they be lying. Mm-hmm. For five days, during which time state police moved them from one Indiana jail to another. At Seymour, Indiana, state police barracks on July 7th, after 28 exhausting hours of questioning, Hicks confessed. He exonerated Miss Miller. In his Hmm. statement, Hicks said that he hired three men, John J. Paholsky, William a Coleman and Frank Gore Williams, all former con- all former convicts to kill Miller. He originally hired John Paholsky first to murder the captain. After agreeing to commit the crime, Paholsky asked for more help. He was reported to weigh around 160 pounds compared to the captain's 300 pound frame. He needed some help to be able to commit this crime. (laughs) Yeah, I would say so. Hicks then hired two other men. He said through Miss Miller, he might acquire Miller's fortune. He told the men that he would pay each of them $400 and a hundred shares of Bethlehem steel stock to do the deed. His motive was to get his hands on the $120,000 in stock certificates in a lockbox owned by the captain and it was stored at his sister's house. Hicks also said he was in Cincinnati when Miller was beaten into unconsciousness in his home on the night of June 11th. So he's saying he wasn't there and these other guys did it. Right, that he just orchestrated it. Exactly. Here's what the plan was and how it happened. They decided to contact the captain with an offer to sell bootleg whiskey on June 11th in hopes to find him at home. On June 11th, the crew embarked to New Trenton in Coleman's Ford. They parked at the bottom of the drive. Hicks, Coleman, and Williams went to the house while Polsky stayed in the car. Hicks poured the captain a glass of whiskey, and while he sampled it, Coleman struck the captain in the head with a lead pipe. The captain fell but returned to his feet and ran for the front porch. The three assailants chased and yelled for Paholsky's assistance. Paholsky arrived and landed several blows to the captain's head with the lead pipe. The captain fell to the ground in a pool of blood. They wrapped the body and placed it in the back of the car. Hicks stayed at the house to clean while the other three drove south with the captain. They approached the ferry crossing in Jefferson County and the captain roused back to consciousness. What? Yeah. He's been hit with a lead pipe like a shit ton of times and he woke back up. Oh my God. So while Paholsky struggled with the captain in the back seat, Coleman turned around and shot him once in the torso and once in the head, killing the captain. Jesus. Yeah. They continued to their planned burial spot in Kentucky. Equipped with their shovels, they immediately hit solid rock. Paholsky suggested dismembering the body to obscure the identity, a trick that he had learned in a recent prison stint. Oh, <laughs> stop. Mm-hmm. 
got tips and tricks with I was just about to say. So not only did he have his prison stint, it taught him something, released him so that he could be able to, to carry out some kind of crimes. Right. So the gang went to work, cutting off the head and hands and casting them in concrete. Then they continued to drive through rural Kentucky. The crew found a remote lake and decided to throw the head and hands into it and stash the torso in a culvert nearby as the sun began to rise. Hicks and the three men he named as the murderers were indicted for first-degree murder late August in Franklin County, Indiana. A nationwide manhunt commenced for his three accomplices. Three weeks later, before Hicks' trial was scheduled to begin, Poholsky was arrested in Warren, Ohio. He readily admitted his part in the murder and that it was his job to cut off the man's head and hands. Now Poholsky then contradicted Hicks' story. Remember how I said that he was not it not part of the actual murder? Mm-hmm. Well, he was not in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. He, according to Poholsky, he had been an active partner throughout the whole murder which is why I said the story of how it happened in that way, because Hicks was part of the whole thing. Of course he was. Hmm. Poholsky appeared as the state's first witness against Hicks at the trial in Brookville, Indiana. Four days after the trial started, Coleman was arrested in Portland, Oregon. Indiana State Police returned him to Indiana by airplane in time for him to testify as the last witness against Hicks. He told a story which agreed in all major details with Poholsky's account and names Hicks as the brains and the paymaster of the murder. The third killer named by Hicks, Frank Gore Williams, was arrested in San Francisco, California. He was then brought back to Indiana to answer for the murder charge. He too admitted complicity in the crime and all three of them said Hicks was there. Okay. So he definitely was there. And I mean, personally, I don't think it matters if he's there or not. He's the one that orchestrated the whole thing and they wouldn't have killed somebody unless he was the one that was paying them to do it and contacted all of them. Right. So he's equally guilty whether he wants to place himself there or not. Well, he has other plans on that. So, Oh, Hicks surprised everyone when he changed his story in court and said that the confession he made at Seymour was not true. He now said that the Miller's murder was planned and paid for by Miller's sister, Flora. What? And that he he had no knowledge of the slaying until the morning after it had been committed. And that Flora said that she had wanted her brother dead because she needed his money. And she's been stealing from him all along. Hicks also said she offered him $25,000 and promised him a top lawyer if he would exonerate her in his confession. Nice. No one believed his story. Yeah, I was about to say, what a BS little line there, sir. And the finger pointing did not go over well with the jury or the judge. (laughs) I'm sure it didn't. Now, police did So the police did learn that Miller was engaged to a young nurse. The fiance told the police that there had been tension between her intended and his sister. 
Flora was constantly badgering Miller for money, and he had recently started talking about cutting her off. The fiancé said Flora's chauffeur, Heber Hick, was another sore point. Miller did not trust him. And the thing is, there was never any proof about any of this. It was just the what the fiancé said. Mm-hmm. But also kind of makes you suspect of Flora a little bit. Yes, it totally does. So you can kind of go, okay, well, maybe she had something to do with it. Or maybe she dropped hints about it. Or maybe she gave him money and he was the one. Yeah, like she could have thrown it together in just a conversation and been like, yeah, if he dies, I inherit everything, you know, just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Totally. Anyway, in the end, Judge O'Brien stated, you will be taken by the sheriff of Franklin County to the Indiana State Penitentiary at Michigan City, where he will deliver you into the custody of the Warren. You. Heber L. Hicks will on April 10th, 1937, before sunrise, be put to death by electric current in accordance with the verdict of this jury and the laws of the state of Indiana. Well, he's not messing around. No. Hicks heard this verdict and showed no visible emotion. Paholsky, Williams, and Coleman were transferred to Franklin County in January 1937, and all three pleaded guilty on February 3rd. The three were sentenced to death before sunrise on June 10th, 1937. The trio were executed by electric chair in Michigan City. This is the only time three inmates have ever been executed on the same day in Indiana. That's crazy. Flora Miller inherited her wealthy brother's estate. (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny, but like, wow. Yeah. The murdered fired captain's shrewd investments would result in her downfall. As years passed, Flora grew more and more eccentric, taking up permanent residence at the then posh Alms Hotel in downtown Cincinnati. She even purchased a 12-room house to store her antiquities while living in the apartment in the hotel. That's just, that's that 12-room house. That's just where I keep my stuff. (laughs) that's just my closet by 1954 flora was holed up in her apartment which she hadn't left in seven years jesus what yeah the alms staff contacted police when the 83 year old became hysterical shouting and threatening to shoot anyone who tried to enter her apartment the police entered with a battering ram autumn it was a scene from hoarders Oh, no. Flora was living in deplorable conditions, surrounded by expired food and garbage. Early in the century, Flora was a talented opera singer and part of a traveling company. Some say that a failed romance sent her home to her mother and she became increasingly reclusive. The interesting thing is that it wasn't all garbage. An auctioneer who was charged with doing the inventory for the apartment contents said that it was the most bizarre collection of stuff I have handled in many years. Here's a collection of mid-Victorian and late Victorian personal effects and domestic equipment that has never been equaled by the contents of any home I have ever seen in Cincinnati. Some of the stuff is magnificent and some of it is just junk. (laughs) There were trunks of theatrical costumes crammed in the home's attic and basement. And she had truckloads of marble 
which she was hoping to use one day to build a castle in her backyard. What? Yep, you heard me right. Um, <laughs> Flora, unfortunately, was declared mentally ill and the courts committed her to a sanitarium. She remained there until her death in 1962. She was 91 years old. In the end, her estate was valued at a little over $200,000, which is the equivalent to about $1.7 today. Friends say they knew of no enemies for Harry R. Miller, and they believed that money had been the motive for the killing. Miller was a shrewd investor and was not shy when it came to talking about his wealth, which was estimated at the time of his death at a half million dollars, which would have been about $9 million today. Jesus. My sources were the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Skeleton Key Chronicles, and the Daily News. What the heck? That was the head and hands murder. Yeah, I have never heard of that one. I couldn't find anything on any, anything. I mean, that's I, so I was crazy. The, I was using the original newspapers to be able to put this whole thing together. That is so crazy that no one picked up on that story because that's so mind blowing. Right. I just, I was, when I read it, I, you know, cause like I, sometimes I am in a little bit of an insomniac and I stay up sometimes. Like, yeah, all the time, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Everyone knows they can text me at any time, at any time, <laughs> but I was, um, so I was looking at, you know, I I'm looking up weird shit and going down rabbit holes and I was looking up murders that had happened on June 27th because I was like, Ooh, maybe I'll do something like that for my birthday. You know, just birthday murders. It's fine. Yeah, I'm normal. Just, it's fine. Of, of course. I respect <laughs> the process. So, you know, sometimes I'll get in a rabbit hole and I do I'll find some really weird stuff June, that popped up. And then I was like, what is this? I've never heard of this. So then I started looking up, you know, trying to find podcasts that maybe had covered it. Then I was looking up shows that maybe covered it. And I couldn't find anything except for the original newspaper articles and a couple those those other um, websites. Other than that, I could not find anything. I was shocked. Because this story is fucking crazy. Yes, it is so, it's so unique and bizarre. And bizarre. And then I just loved that there was a follow-up to what happened to Flora after, you know? Mm -hmm. And it still makes you wonder, was she doing was subtle she? Yes. hints to Heber? I don't know. What She very well, and maybe it wasn't so subtle. Maybe she really was like, yo, if he dies... I mean, I, he did I say, get moolah. <laughs> he did say that he would get $25,000 if he exonerated her in his confession. Yeah. The thing is, is that he wasn't, he already confessed. So he wasn't going to get away with it anyway. What, what would you do with $25,000 in prison? Right. Well, I so mean, he got out before, remember? <laughs> he did. That is So true. maybe he's like, when I get out this time, I'm going to have 25000 Yeah. I mean, that's so crazy. I tried to find any information on how or why he possibly could have gotten out of like being yeah. guilty for murdering yes. a woman and cutting her fingers off. Right. I'm just like, oh my he's God. Not in, he's like into these like dismemberment things. I guess so. Although it was Paholsky's idea to dismember. And well, oh, and then he's, he's like, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I know how to do that from my last 
murder. Well, and that poor farmer that came out and found like the blood and bloody handkerchiefs and everything. And those kids. And the kids. Oh, it's all the things. It is awful. But we did have a little connection with the ex-cons. With ex-cons. And then didn't they see, they saw a human skull in the ground. Mm -hmm. They saw, you know, the head and well, they saw the hand sticking out of the cardboard box in concrete. Like you guys did a shit job, by the way. Right. Like, hello. Well, the other part of the, the McStay family is yes, it was the Mojave desert is super remote. And apparently Chase Merritt's sister lived not too far from the area that the body was found. And Uh, the police are convinced that he knew that area pretty well. I mean, that would make sense, Mm -hmm. but it's just, Oh, oh my gosh. That story was so crazy. That's why I was like, oh my God, I got to And like in the I first line, I'm off the bat with this craziness. And then yes. I was like, this is how it starts. It's, it just got crazier from there. I know. As I was doing research, I was like, just giddy with like, oh my God, what, what, what is this? What, yes. how, how did this happen? You know, it was just right. a Less. crazy one. Yes, it is a crazy one, but it, it's a really good one. I'm just so shocked that I didn't find anyone. Me too. Covered it before. I'm so glad you did because that's so interesting. And, you know, so weird to go down a crazy rabbit hole of June 27th murders. It just <laughs> yes. happened to find this stumble upon it. That is, um, that is, I loved that. Yeah, that was, it was a really crazy one. Anywho, <laughs> we're happy to be back. Yes. Hopefully there will be no more personal tragedies going on. Yeah. And Fingers I will... and toes crossed. Good fucking Lord. Um, so I will be back. Uh, we will be back next week and bringing some, uh, some good stories. So we'll some murder some into your life. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll put some, we'll put some pics up on the Instagram page. If you don't already follow us, we're murder, not murdering. Um, and you can always find information about our stories on murdernotmurdering.com. And we will talk to you guys next week. Send us emails, DMs, send us stories. We love that. Yes, um, we absolutely love it. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.